but it's our prayer, it's our devotion to the Word of God, listening to God, so prayer, speaking to God, listening to God, and loving one another deeply. These are the core things that God is throwing us back on at the moment because we might think that the important things are the venue, the space we meet in, regularity and so on. But it is as if God right now in a very tough time is throwing us back on those core and most important things of prayer, devoting ourselves to his word and loving one another deeply. And I urge you to think about how you're going to love your brothers and sisters in this church tomorrow and the week ahead and the month ahead. And Revelation 11 is certainly a, a portion of the Bible that, that, that really refocuses us as a church and forces us to see our mission as a church and what it's going to be like as we seek to carry out that mission. So let me pray and then we will wade into Revelation 11. Our Father, we plead for the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life and light to enliven our hearts and to open our blind eyes, to unblock our deaf ears, to see you and to hear your voice this morning from your word. Build us up, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 11 is in many ways a filling out of something that something brief that was mentioned right at the end of Revelation chapter 10 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember Revelation chapter 10, verse 10, we, we read, read that John took the little scroll from the angel's hand, this is the word of God, and ate it. And do you remember the, the effect that it had on him as he ate the word of God? It tasted as sweet as baklava, as honey in his mouth. And the gospel is a sweet, sweet message. But when he had eaten it, his stomach turned sour, bitter. And what we learn from that is that although the gospel is a sweet message, a, a glorious message of light and life for the world, that it will be received with hostility and bitterness. And Revelation 11 is a filling out of that little picture in chapter 10, verse 10. What we see in Revelation 11 is that tiny sketch filled out in much more detail. And we read that John was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshippers. And what we see here is John defining the church of God. He's defining the church, which is defined as the temple of God. The temple is, is God's house, and the altar is the place where God provides atonement for the sins of his people, and there we see its worshippers. So, so here we see 
as it were, the, the church of God defined and measured out, but exclude the outer court, John. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And what we see here is that there really has always been and always will be a sharp division between the church, the people of God, and the world. And that might make us feel uncomfortable. And we might want to try to blur the differences between the church and the world. Why do we do that, by the way? Well, so often it, it's, it's well-intentioned. We want to try to blur the divisions between the church and the world to make the world feel more comfortable about coming in. But it never, ever has that effect. All it does is makes Christians feel more comfortable in going out. That's all that ever happens. And so there, there ought to be a sharp division between the church and the world, exclude the outer court, John is told, and they, that is, unbelievers, those outside of the church, will trample the holy city, trample the church for 42 months. And don't forget that the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. We are looking at symbols this morning and we interpret those symbols in light of the Old Testament and 42 months equals three and a half years. That's, that's half of seven, which is the number standing for perfection and completeness. And what this is saying is that the church will be trampled by those outside of the church for a limited period of time, half of seven, a definite and limited period of time. Now, next we see the character of the church. So we've seen the church defined, as it, as it were, in distinction to the world, and now we see the character of the church from verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so here we see the church symbolised by two witnesses. And the commentators have come up with a hundred different interpretations of who those two witnesses are. And I'm, I'm going to suggest a very simple interpretation that we have here the witness of the prophets of the Old Testament and we have the, the witness of the apostles of the New Testament. Here is the church as a collective symbolized by two witnesses, the, the prophets of old, the apostles of the new, proclaiming God's Son and Saviour to the world. So see in these two witnesses a picture of the church. Here's the church of the Old and New Testament. Two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, and the mathematically minded will have noticed instantly that that, that is the same as the 42 months, right? 42 30-day months equals 1,260 days. So for that time in which the church will be trampled by the Gentiles, by unbelievers, the church will be witnessing for precisely that same period. Now notice how splendidly the church is arrayed, how magnificent the church looks to the world. How is the church arrayed? How are these two witnesses representing the church clothed? They're clothed in sackcloth. 
mangy old sackcloth. Old sacks picked up off the street, cut a hole in the top and a couple of in the side for your arms. That's the church. That's how the church appears. And let us remember that the things that the world values dearly and deeply, what are they? The world values beauty, wealth, power, influence, intellect, education. The Bible does not rate these things at all as important. What the world values, God does not value. What God values is integrity, love, faithfulness, believing in him and in his son. And so the church, which could care less about beauty, intellect, education, power, political power, influence, appears to the world very humbly. Sackcloth doesn't look like very much at all. And when the church tries to clothe itself in what the world values, it's always a disaster. It's always a monstrosity. Let's, let's not try to impress the world with the things that impress the world. We come as we are. And so here's the church. And they are, who are they? The two witnesses. That's a symbol in itself. Now we see a symbol of a symbol. They are two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. And this harkens back to Zechariah chapter 4 and a vision of a lampstand, a golden lampstand, flaming the light and truth of God's word, and it has been fed by two olive trees, golden oil pouring from those trees into the lampstand. And, and John takes that picture from Zechariah 4, and he adjusts it a little bit, and what he says is that the church is empowered by... Now, what, what does oil always represent in the Old Testament? It's the, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so what John is seeing here is that although the church appears in sackcloth and appears plain and ugly to the world's sight, that it is being incessantly empowered by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where the church's strength is, not in its outward beauty, wealth and glory, but in, in the power of the Spirit. And, and if we forget that, brothers and sisters, if we forget that, we've had it. And, 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 and when we get it, what do we do? When we get that the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We pray. That's what brings us to prayer. And one of the the most important ministries of our church is that little prayer meeting that meets in that room at quarter past nine on a Sunday morning. And could I encourage, again, as many as possible to see that your Sunday worship begins at quarter past nine in that room where we gather and we pray to God and then we come in here to worship him together.
And in many ways, that is where the battle is being fought. In that room and in the prayers of God's people through the week, that's where the battle is being fought for the souls of God's people and the health of God's people. And, and this, this wonderful picture here in Revelation reminds me of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is shown a wall and against the wall is a fire, a blazing fire, and this fire represents the faith of the Christian. Do you remember that scene from, from Pilgrim's Progress? And what's the devil doing? The devil is throwing buckets of water on the flame. He's trying to extinguish the faith of the Christian. That's what's going on. And the Christian looks at this and he sees that no matter how much water the devil is throwing on the flame, the flame just seems to, to burn brighter and brighter. And he wonders at this until the interpreter takes him behind the wall to see what? To see Jesus himself pouring oil behind the wall into that, that, that faith, the Christian's faith, so that no matter how much the, the devil is trying to extinguish it, that flame just continues to burn brighter and brighter because Jesus is feeding the flame with his Holy Spirit and with his power. And I said that there are many suffering in our church right now, and humanly speaking, some of the things I've seen would crush a person in a moment and certainly would extinguish a person's faith in a moment. But I'm seeing my brothers and sisters unbelievably step forward one step at a time in their Christian faith and walk through terrible trials and suffering. It's Christ. It's the Spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That is the church. Now, let's see what happens. When the world persecutes the church represented by the two witnesses. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, what's that reminding us of? That's reminding us of Moses in Egypt, isn't it? Where, where Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and, and Pharaoh refused, and Moses lifted up his staff over the rivers and waterways of Egypt, and the water turned into blood. Pharaoh's opposition backfired into tremendous harm upon himself and upon the nation. And it reminds us of another prophet, the prophet Elijah, who came to Israel in, the, in its darkest days as Ahab and Jezebel leading the people in Baal worship and the worship of the Ashtoreth And Elijah called the people to repent of their idolatry, called the people back to the Lord 
and they wouldn't listen, and that led to a terrible drought on the land of Israel. And what Revelation is reminding us here is that although the world will, will seek to persecute and crush the church, that when the world resists the call to repentance and to faith in Christ, it only brings more harm upon itself. That, that's the, the terrible catastrophe that we see. It only brings more harm. We're seeing that with our own eyes, aren't we, in our own nation? As our own nation tries furiously to try to expunge all remnants of Christian culture and God's law and God's ways from our culture and from our laws, we are seeing at the very same time that our nation is consciously rejecting God and his ways, we are seeing at, at the terrible rise of mental illness and, and suffering, particularly with our young people. It should be no surprise, it's an awful thing, but when a people reject the ways of God, they only bring harm upon themselves. And this is what we see in Revelation 11. And now we see a clearer picture of this persecution. And when they have finished their testimony, that is the two witnesses, when the two witnesses, has, when the church represented by these two witnesses have testified about Christ, the beast, and we're going to learn much more about the beast next week and the week after. It's the devil that comes up from the abyss, the abyss of hell, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. This is God's, how, do we, how can I put it? It's, it's his heads up, isn't it, to the church? It's God saying, the, the, the church's job is to witness to my son and to call people to repentance. And this is, this is what you must expect. You must expect the devil to attack and overpower and kill. And their bodies, the bodies of the two witnesses, will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. To put it in a word, our Lord Jesus said in John 15 verse 20 that a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, says Jesus, they will persecute you. And if the church is faithfully witnessing to Christ and calling the world to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then we expect to be treated like Christ, who himself was killed in the public square. Our Lord was killed in the public square. And the church, it is promised here, will suffer that same fate. In fact, the, the, the apostles, in their letters to the church, you can sense the frustration in the apostles as they're saying, why, why are you surprised that you're being persecuted, says Peter. Why are you surprised, 
Didn't, didn't Jesus promise that? Didn't our Lord himself, wasn't he himself crucified and shamed in the public square? Why are you surprised? And this is so important. If, if we don't expect this, then when persecution comes, what's going to happen? It's going to fall over. Now, the, those of us older than 40, I don't think we'll fall over when the persecution and the hardship comes. I don't, I don't think so. Because I think we have decades of, of, of faith and, and thought behind us. I, I am concerned for our young people going into the university, going into healthcare, going into the academy. I'm concerned that without... If you are not ready for the persecution, if you are not ready for the opposition, you're going to fall over when it comes. And so you need to take this message to heart and we need to be strengthened and ready for that, that opposition. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, nation, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial, which was the most shameful thing for a person in the ancient world to not be properly buried. It's heaping shame upon shame. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other's gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. That, that, that reminded me, by the way, of the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre of French Protestant Christians in 1572 and where the estimates are well over 10,000 Protestant Christians were put to death on the 24th of August of that year and the Seine flowed red with their blood. And do you know how the Pope responded, Gregory XIII in Rome? He responded by having celebratory cannons fired and gold medals struck to celebrate the great day. And a great tapestry was commissioned to celebrate the death of the Protestants at Paris in 1572. And this, again, was predicted that God's church would be persecuted and the world would celebrate that. Why? Because these two prophets, who were the two prophets? The church had tormented those who lived on the earth. And, and, and brothers and sisters, if we don't understand that the, the gospel call to repent of sin and to believe in Christ is not a hateful message that torments the world who hears it, then we, we, we haven't grasped the gospel it is a deeply confronting and obnoxious message to the world. It torments the world into anger and into wanting to crush and put down Christians. But God will vindicate his church, as we see in verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life, from God entered them. That word breath could also be translated the, the spirit of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, like the death of Christ. And a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. And this is a promise that when the church is, is, is persecuted, when Christians suffer and are put to death for witnessing to the gospel, God will in time vindicate them. That's not the end of the story. Think, think, think about who was the first martyr, who was the first person to die, the first Christian to die was a deacon. Deacons, remember that? Stephen. And Stephen died under a hail of stones in Jerusalem by enraged Pharisees and Sadducees, tormented by his message. And Stephen fell asleep, we read. Was that the end of Stephen? By no means. We read that the Lord himself was standing there to receive him into glory. And this is the tremendous hope and encouragement that Christians have. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. But that's not the end of the story. You'll be received by the Lord himself. And I, I take that to mean not just those who die for their faith, but those who suffer those little cuts each and every day which hurt and can, can, can keep you awake at night. Even those little persecutions, our Lord, he, he, he will soothe you. He will comfort you. He sees them. He will vindicate you. It's not the end of the story by any means. And I want to finish this morning with a picture of the church in glory because this is where this is where we're going to be this is, this is a picture of, of, of us and all of God's people in future this is a picture of heaven the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And this is something that the book of Revelation says time and again, that heaven is not an airy-fairy, cloudy place up there. It is this earth that God created, renewed, restored, with Christ enthroned, and the curse banished. Here we are. Christ reigning forever and ever. And the 24 elders, which is a number, another symbol of the church, you'll remember. The 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New. Another beautiful picture of the church. Who were seated on their thrones before God. And this is so beautiful. At the end of time, though God has lifted up his people and vindicated them and they are seated on thrones 
when they in turn see the Son of God, they cannot possibly remain seated on their thrones. We, God, God will vindicate us. He will lift us up. We will be seated on heavenly thrones. Yet when we see the Son of God in all his power and glory who saved the world by his blood, we won't remain on our thrones. We will fall on our faces, it says here. Fall on our faces to worship him and to cry out, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And I love that little detail, both great and small. Because around the throne of God, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not going to be the, the great ones and the famous ones. It's, it's going to be all. I, I, I'm picturing the, the, the children of the church. And those in our church who, who, in the world's eyes, might have a very humble place in the church, they're not leading Bible studies or, or, or leading us in music, necessarily. But the smallest and the most humble gathered around the throne on their faces, together, all of us together, glorifying our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, with all our heart. And let's finish with this tremendous image in our minds. God's temple in heaven was opened. Opened. There's no more barrier between God and his people. And within his temple we see the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we lift up our hearts and minds to you this morning and the cares of those who are suffering in our church are heavy on our hearts. And we thank you, Lord God, that you are carrying them through day by day, hour by hour. And Lord, help us to love one another deeply as Christ has loved us. Help us now to love one another in that same way. Lord, fill us with the Spirit of Christ, with his love. Show us how to love Show us what that means this afternoon, tomorrow and the week ahead. Bring to our attention those who are suffering. Show us how to put an arm around. Show us how to bear one another's burdens. Show us how to encourage the discouraged. Show us how to help those who are physically suffering. Show us how to, to comfort those whose, whose relationships are breaking and, and straining. 
show us how to share the burdens of those who are not sure how they're going to pay the bills this week. And Lord, we thank you for this magnificent picture of your church, Revelation 11, and we look forward. Those of us gathered in this place will be gathered in the heavenly throne room with all other believers, great and small. And we thank you and praise you for that. We long for it. We look forward to it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.